Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Carolyn Winterer, the Anthony P. Meyer Family Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University. Her book, American Enlightenments, Pursuing Happiness in the Age of Reason, published by Yale University Press, is a topic of the show. Winterer gives us a glimpse into how 18th century Americans, as the first prophets of tomorrow, thought of enlightenment, and what it meant and how to achieve it. For centuries, enlightenment had a religious meaning of the soul awakening to divine light. Increasingly, it meant using reason and empirical evidence as guides and exchanging tradition and divine revelation for a humanistic and historical view of the world. The aim was nothing short of the pursuit of happiness. Winter challenges mid-20th century Cold War conceptualizations of an American enlightenment is largely an appropriation of European ideas. The language of enlightenment was ubiquitous among educated Americans and applied to a broad range of endeavors. She demonstrates how the encounter with Indians, the expansion of slavery, the application of political economy, and the emergence of natural religion allowed Americans to contribute to a transnational conversation. By placing American thinkers within a transnational in a fresh hemispheric context, and by adding local particularities, Winter allows us to see the diversity of American enlightenments. Here is my conversation with Carolyn Winter. Now let me introduce you to the author, Carolyn Winter. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for sharing our thoughts with my audience. Your book challenges how we think about the enlightenment in America. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write American Enlightenments. I'm an intellectual historian of America in its larger transatlantic contexts. I teach at Stanford University. I'm currently the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. And this is my third or fourth book, depending on, on how you count. And it emerged really from my sense that we were very much in need of a book that captured not just the many peculiar byways of thought in the 18th century, but also how people thought about their world. So not just the what, but the how and the why. And as I'm always saying to my students, you know, it, you don't have to go that far back in time to feel like you've landed on the planet Mars, that the people who came before us thought about the world in a really different way than we do, which means that we have to be very careful and humble when we go back in time. And so when I wrote this book, I really wanted to just capture some of the interesting things that these people in the 18th century were thinking about beyond the American Revolution, which we know so much about as, a, as, a, as, as an intellectual construct. But there were people thinking around the edges of that. And, and it had been a long time since somebody had written a book on the American Enlightenment. Henry May's The Enlightenment in America is the, still the classic text on, on this era and that was published in 1976 so it was time and so i i heeded the call <laughs> wrote the book <laughs> now the word enlightenment is a loaded term it means so many different things to so many different people what did people in the 18th century besides americans generally what did people think in terms of enlightenment what did that mean people in the 18th century generally use the term enlightenment or enlightened, both of them with a small e, to mean two things. 
one that human reason was going to help us to make the world a better place. Human reason as opposed to biblical revelation or the teachings of popes and kings, you know, authorities handed down from the outside. So it was a faith in the idea that every person could use their reasoning capacities, the the data that they receive through their five senses, to make sense of the world around them and then to plot a way forward. So that was the first thing. The second thing they thought when they thought of enlightenment was that there was a way forward, that not only was there a way forward, there was a way upward. And we have to remind ourselves that until that time, people essentially held two compatible narratives in their head about the trajectory of human history. And they were both decline narratives. You know, either we had fallen out of the Garden of Eden and we were simply mired in sin and hoping that the better life would be in the world beyond after our death. Or, to take a more secular narrative, people thought, oh, the greatest civilizations in the history of the world were Greece and Rome, and they had democracy and republicanism and big empires, and all of this was very good. And the best that we can do is to scrutinize what these noble Greeks and Romans wrote and and to try to be pale imitations of them. What was so exciting about becoming enlightened in the 18th century was that it broke free of both of both of those decline narratives and said, in fact, contra the biblical narrative, we actually should make this world the platform for our upward ascent. And two, contra the Greeks and Romans, we can actually be better than, than they are if we use our human reason to understand the world around us. So it's really two very on the surface, simple ideas, reason, can help you to to achieve progress. They're the first people who think that. But then, of course, when you dig more deeply, you realize that these are two very, very complicated and contradictory processes and that people are are wrestling with, with these two things. But those are the two things in a nutshell. Now, you are presenting also a historiographical problem. You're saying that American historians have created a myth about the American Enlightenment, quote-unquote, as part of the Cold War project. So what is, what is your challenge to, to that Cold War historiography? The Cold War historiography essentially invented the term the American Enlightenment, capital A, capital E. And this emerged in the period roughly 1945 to about 1970 as... Uh, American historians, opinion makers, artists, others, wrestled with the great looming threat to the United States in the 20th century, which was the, the apparent triumph of totalitarian regimes abroad. There was an enormous moral and political urgency to this era. And what American historians decided was that It was the legacy of the American Revolution, what they thought of as the legacy of freedom and democracy. These were their terms, freedom and democracy, that would shield the modern United States from these dangerous uh, foreign ideas. And that while Europe, Europe had had an enlightenment, but it had not been saved from these dangerous and dark governmental regimes, and and they were responding to the work of European historians like uh, Adorno and Horkheimer, who had diagnosed a, a straight line, you know, from the 18th century scientism and, and other kinds of classification regimes to the horrors of the Nazis. And the American historians looked at that and said, no, 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 maybe that's what happened to Europe, but that's never going to happen here because our American enlightenment protects us like a vaccine from these kinds of dark um, regimes that we see in, in the Kremlin. So it was, it was a kind of ideological bomb shelter. It was a bomb shelter made of ideas rather than concrete. So this was all very nice, and, and there was a lot of really interesting work that came out of that moment. What ended up happening, in my view, though, is that that, that way of looking at the American Enlightenment became a prison. 
and it became a prison of patriotism and nationalism. And, and so people became trapped in this modern analytic category, and they felt like the American Enlightenment had to be a certain thing. So I, I remember thinking, gosh, you know, somebody circulated some memo about what the American Enlightenment was to everybody but me. Because when I go to the 18th century, A, I don't see anybody using that term, and B, I just don't understand how everybody else seems to know what this American Enlightenment is except me. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? So it was actually immensely liberating to reconstruct that Cold War moment because having seen it as a construct, I could then deconstruct it and say, well, okay, that's all very nice. Nothing wrong with the Cold War American Enlightenment. But what happens if we go behind it, go back to the 18th century, and instead of predetermining what people said or people thought about an American, a mythical American enlightenment, that we just ask them, when you think you are becoming enlightened, what is, what is it that you are thinking of? I, you know, I have no predetermined conceptions. So I, I simply asked my 18th century people. And the chapters in the book actually emerged from their voices now, one thing that you say is that the notion of the American Enlightenment was based on an idea of diffusion. Ideas from Europe were diffused into the United States where they maybe changed and were adapted, but you're challenging the diffusion narrative. Yeah. So how is the notion of enlightenment in America different from what we think of the classical European Enlightenment? The idea of the classical European Enlightenment is actually also a 20th century construct. <laughs> it's um, constructed by a variety of historians over the 20th century. Carl Becker, the progressive era historian, wrote one of the most widely read books on the Enlightenment called The, um, the Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers. Our modern conception of the diffusion of the European Enlightenment was probably most popularized for your listeners by a historian named Peter Gay, who wrote a two-volume, beautifully written, very compelling survey of the Enlightenment called The Enlightenment. <laughs> and it was published in 1966 and 1969. And he uh, really set into concrete this idea that there was this thing called the Enlightenment. It had a variety of different features, but that ultimately it uh, crossed the Atlantic, inspired the American revolutionaries, and made them think their grand thoughts about republicanism and, and freedom from British encroachments and, and, and led them to the, their American revolution. Uh, this idea was further propagated in Henry May's book in, in 1976, The Enlightenment in America. What I see as being problematic about that is that first it imagines what we know cannot be true, is that ideas cross the ocean once, going westward, as though a ship could never go in the other direction. <laughs> so we know that that's basically implausible. More fundamentally, though, it imagines that Europeans somehow have access to a realm of ideas and thought without the input of anywhere else in the world. And when you study empires the way colonial American historians do and historians of, of the broader European imperial project, you know that Europe itself was profoundly transformed by the imperial project. Europeans didn't sit in their castles and, and have just thoughts, you know, pop into their head out of nowhere. They were utterly transfixed by the, the masses of information pouring into their ports from around the world information about every variety of thing, about other human beings, about other plants, about other animals, about, about other ways they could see the, the heavens because they were standing in different mountaintops. And, and I thought, well, isn't it more logical to imagine that the European Enlightenment itself is a product of the multiple transferences of information back and forth, back and forth over long periods of time 
you know, Spinoza, Locke, Newton, all of these people are deeply interested and in some cases invested in the imperial project. So I imagined in this book that enlightenment was a, a transatlantic conversation that occurred for many decades and that at a certain point, certain themes would rise up to captivate people's attention just as they do today. You know, we, we have certain things that suddenly are put on our, on our national agenda and then they fade away. But it seemed to me much more plausible to imagine enlightenment as, as a conversation among many groups of people spread out across the world. And, and that is how I presented it in this book. Well, I'm very excited about what you did in terms of transatlantic, which I totally agree with, and what you did with the Americas, looking at it hemispherically, that early on the whole hemisphere was sort of, uh, you know, vying for attention in terms of we, we can contribute to this enlightenment idea. We can contribute something. What did the Americans, not only North Americans, but Latin Americans, or not Latin America at that time, but Spanish Americans, um, contribute to this transnational conversation and how did they engage in that transnational conversation or transatlantic conversation? Well, I'll take the second part of your question first. This is the great age of the letter. Uh, you know, between 1492 and about 1850, the size of the average person's letter network balloons from just a few uh, to, to letter networks in, in the range of the 20, 30, 40,000 letters sent and received, surviving sent and received letters during a lifetime. Who knows how many letters, you know, lie at the bottom of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So someone like Ben Franklin, he sent and received over 20,000 letters over the course of his life. So, so the primary mode of communication was the letter. And we have to remind ourselves that really for, for most of recorded human history until the telegraph in, in the 19th century, um, the, the letter is the primary technology for long-distance communication. And so that was how many people living in the Americas wrote to Europe, and then, of course, how Europeans wrote to, to people in the Americas. So it was very important in this book to look beyond canonical published texts, to look into people's letters where, you know, they didn't know that those letters were going to be preserved. Some of them took great pains to preserve the letters, and we're, of course, delighted that they did today. But in a letter, you could relax a bit, and you could put forth ideas in a, in a more chaotic and, and unprepared fashion, just like when we shoot off an email or a text, that it's, it's, it's not planned, it's, it's, not, it's not intended to be for the ages. And so I could catch my 18th century figures, who we often imagine, you know, frozen under their great meringues of wigs and in their stiff silk outfits, I could catch them at home writing about some of the ideas that were most compelling and important to them in rather chaotic ways. So the letters, those communications, form a big part of the book, alongside, of course, the canonical texts that were meant to be preserved for the ages. So, so you're really getting multiple kinds of voices, prepared voices and unprepared voices. As far as what it meant to be in the Americas, the first thing we have to remember is that when people said the new world, they literally meant that this world was newer. According to the reigning theory of Earth formation, they really thought that the Americas had emerged last from the oceans at the moment of creation. And so very much like we are wet and cold when we come out of the bath, they believed that climactically the Americas were damp and cold because they had emerged last from the oceans and that therefore all life forms degenerated in the Americas. This theory was most widely associated with a guy named the Comte de Buffon. He's this very, he's like the Darwin of the 18th century and nobody's ever heard of him today. Um, although they've all heard of Darwin and Darwin had heard of Buffon, but it's one of those lovely moments that reminds us how quickly very famous people are buried by the sands of time. But people in the Americas struggled with this 
very dismal European conception of not only the state of the abolition, the uh, sorry, the um, Aboriginal peoples of the Americas that, you know, having grown up in this cold and wet climate, they must be inferior just by nature. But then what would happen to Europeans who moved into the Americas, the Creole populations, that, that it was widely believed that they would begin to degenerate. They would lose their hair. They would become smaller. They might become darker. They would revert to the allegedly barbaric ways of the Americas. So one of the, the ways in which Americans, and I'm using American very, very broadly here to mean anyone who happens to be sitting <laughs> you know, in the Western Hemisphere. One of the major conversational modes that they had with Europe was writing back to try to give some evidence to the contrary. And so they often said, well, you know, we actually have some animals here that are bigger (laughs) than the animals that you have in Europe. The Americans loved to stand up in Parisian salon in the 18th century and show that they were taller than the French to prove, you know, that that Thomas Jefferson was not degenerating in the Americas. But that was one of the ways in which they contributed a, um, a whole variety of information that actually they called data that they contributed data about what it was actually like to be in the Americas. And Europeans were interested. They used this data to craft their theories, their, quote, enlightenment theories about nature and society and government. So these theories are often represented as being the product of their, their minds, you know, as though somehow these ideas just kind of arrived in their brains. But they didn't. (laughs) They were formed from data gathered from other parts of the world, including the Americas. Now, one thing you talk about was uh, the Aztecs, which I thought was a very interesting chapter about how the Aztecs were used by the Americans, both uh, Spanish-Americans and Anglo-Americans, to show the Europeans that there was a possibility of having advanced, rational civilizations in the Americas. And what was interesting was the hook. The hook was that it was actually used in North America to say, oh, their contemporary Indians were degenerate. Yeah. Talk about that. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I was very determined in this book to not simply confine my inquiries to conversations about the East Coast of of North America, because I knew that there were so many other things going on that people were interested in. And many, many people, both in Europe and the Americas, were intensely interested in a group of people that they called the ancient Mexicans. The term Aztec is not invented until about 1800. But the term ancient Mexicans referred to the peoples of central Mexico Uh, who had thrived before contact, and contact is from 1492 onward. These people were so interesting because they seemed to have achieved this advanced state of civilization. They built cities like Tenochtitlan that was the Venice of the New World. It was better than Venice. It was bigger. It had aqueducts. It had enormous temples. It it had been the seat of a mighty empire. And uh, there weren't just Aztecs. You know, there were all kinds of other people who paid tribute to, to the city of Tenochtitlan. These were record-producing peoples. And the the records that they produced, the codexes, the codices, were shipped in large numbers back to Europe and then in turn published in book form and then shipped back to the Americas and widely circulated. So people, British Americans who lived in North America were like a lot of people at this time intensely interested in not only just the Aztecs, qua Aztecs, but as a rebuke to the European degeneracy theories. You know, give us a minute and we'll make another Tenochtitlan because we see by looking at the Aztecs that that the climate of the Americas does not necessarily cause you to degenerate. Now, the problem came 
after roughly 1763, 1776, 1783, when a lot of white British Americans began to cross over the Appalachian Mountains, which had been, for all intents and purposes, blocked to them by the proclamation line of 1763, which was defended by the British. They began to spill over the Appalachians into what we think of as the Midwest. And there they saw incredible archaeological remains of what appeared to be large buildings. And they began to ask the Indians around these buildings, well, what are these incredible temples? And they, the Indians, many of them denied knowledge of them. So this caused British Americans, white British Americans, to craft a theory that attributed those ruins to the mighty city-building Aztecs, who had built them and then left and created an empty space in which British Americans could then settle and ignore the current Indians living there, who they imagined to be unrelated to those city-building Aztecs. So they could justify, British Americans could justify their colonization of huge swaths of land that were um, settled by the Indians by saying, well, you have no relationship. You apparently don't remember these city-building Aztecs. You're not related to them. We owe you nothing. And we can inhabit your land. So um, this was a very, very interesting moment to see how you could simultaneously elevate of an allegedly vanished Indian population in order to conquer or attempt to conquer a currently living one. Now, another thing that you talk about uh, regarding the Indian population was the whole idea of an Indian population, that concept. I never even thought that somebody had to come up with the idea of a population of a certain group of people. Can you talk about a little bit about that and what effect it had? Yeah, uh, so the Indians of the Americas are uh, very likely the most counted people in American history from the get-go. They're immediately counted at contact. And there are many theories about their decline from large numbers to small numbers. That may be true. Um, The thing to remember, though, as historians who are responsible to the records that are left behind is that many of those records are very problematic. Now, I want to be very clear about what I'm saying. I'm not denying the idea that many Native Americans died since the Colombian arrival in 1492. What I am doing is drawing our attention to the nature of the records that we have about how you count people who you define as Indians. And what I discovered is that there are actually certain conventions that are used by Europeans for counting populations. And they are conventions that are inherited from the Greco-Roman world. So you see the same kinds of maneuvers when you see Caesar's numbers as he goes into Gaul. And these population records are very conventional in many cases. So they're often rounded to the nearest zero, et cetera, et cetera. What happens, so, so you know, we have these huge numbers of records of, of Native Americans being counted in a variety of contexts, mostly military contexts. At the moment of nation formation in 1776, and especially after the Constitution requires that populations be counted for representation in the federal and state legislatures, there's a new um, push to try to accurately count the Indians in order to do various things with them. For example, to say that they're not part of the regular U.S. population. (laughs) So we actually have these weird sources that say there's an Indian population, but it's not part of the American population. And these things are very odd. Of course, how how can that be? Um, But what this chapter does is to show how that very strange thing came to happen, that that the Indians were there, but that they began to be the uncounted people. And so you had to create this invented new category 
called Indian population, the Indian population that on the one hand was very, very accurately counted or attempts were made to accurately count, but then were discounted from the Republican governance processes of the United States. And all of this was done in the name of enlightenment, <laughs> which was extraordinary. These were the first statistical studies of the population of American Indians, counting for various state purposes. Um, and the word statistics is, in fact, coined during the enlightenment. It's coined in the 1790s. So this is a chapter that attempts to, again, use the information from the context context of the Americas itself to say these enlightened ways of thinking in, in many cases emerged not just from European concerns, but from live concerns in the Americas. You know, there are more Native Americans in the Americas than there are Europeans in Europe. So it's a big population to count. It's an important question. And population management. Yeah, population management. And, and which you talk about it being really leading to moving uh, uh, Indians off their land to right. manage them. And there were some, there were specific goals of what that was going to do. But I want to go on to talk about slavery. We know that Europeans uh, were involved in the slave trade extensively. They had a lot of theories about slavery. It's in their thought. But what you're saying about Americans' involvement with slavery was very much close to the breast. They, they had the plantations, big plantations, and so they got to see uh, slavery, what it looked like as an institution when you live it out. What effect did they have? How did, what did they contribute to the whole uh, the transatlantic conversation about slavery? Yeah, uh, well, yes, you're absolutely right. Slavery is a major concern in the 18th century. Millions of slaves crossed the Atlantic in in the 18th century. European ports become slave trading ports in that the slaving ships are built in those ports and those ports send and receive the products of the slave trade. But the slave plantations are in the Americas. And that reality deeply, deeply pressed on the minds of people who live there, most especially, of course, the slaves themselves. Uh, there were literacy laws that prevented slaves from being taught to read in many cases. So we have a huge gap in the historical record in the 18th century, um, which is basically that we don't know what a lot of the slaves were thinking, although we can imagine it. It would be wonderful to have those sources, but we don't. But we do have a lot of sources about free white people talking about what it is like to live in a slave society where, you know, in some cases, the majority of the population in a state or a colony is enslaved. So they write to Europe with information along those lines. And it's all over the map. So, you know, one of the distinctive things about New World slavery is that by the 18th century, it's highly race-based, uh, which is not the case in the Greco-Roman world. So we have a population that uh, looks different from other populations. And there's intense interest in the 18th century in the question, well, what, you know, why do people have different skin color? And where does the skin color come from? And Isaac Newton, you know, has theories about this, right, that it has to do with the deflection of light and, and you know, they use his optics, which is published in 1704, to try to imagine the various reasons why skin color can be different. So that's one of the conversations that, quote, enlightened people have, is that they're going to use their reason to kind of mash up skin samples, white, black, other, and, and you know, to dissolve them. I mean, literally in laboratories, right, they're dissolving skin samples to try to understand this, this mysterious question, you know, where, where, where is skin color and how do we know? But they also have a much larger concern that becomes prominent in the 18th century, which is, well, people seem to be really suffering from slavery, and, and maybe it's a bad thing. And, and this is so keenly felt in the Americas. They see the suffering. And so some of the first sustained anti-slavery voices emerge in the 18th century. And 
uh, it is in the Americas that those voices really begin to get some traction because there are, you know, there are eyes on the ground looking and, and writing in very moving ways about the suffering of slavery and what it is that can be done about it. That, again, this is the whole idea of reason and this earthly moment being our moment slavery having been created by human beings rather than given to us by God, it is incumbent upon human beings to get rid of it. Um, so there begins a transatlantic conversation about what that might mean. What, what does it mean to be enlightened about slavery? And there's no consensus on that. We today, of course, say, well, to be enlightened about slavery means to emancipate all slaves immediately. Well, that, those were some voices who called themselves enlightened, people like Thomas Clarkson, the, the people who later become known as the abolitionists, immediate, uncompensated abolition of, of slavery everywhere. A lot of other voices have different conceptions of what it means to be enlightened. Perhaps it means um, that you just treat your slaves better. If you cannot imagine your way out into a post-emancipation society in which suddenly two, three million people are set free, um, then maybe enlightenment can just mean that those people remain enslaved, but that they are treated less harshly. That form of argumentation also um, emerged under the banner of enlightenment. And, you know, we look at that today and we say, that's fake enlightenment. <laughs> that's not real. But that's why it's so important to, to listen to people in the 18th century. That was really interesting in your book when you make the point that enlightenment could mean that you keep slavery, you're just nice to the slaves. Yeah. Right. And, and also, when you're talking about suffering, human suffering, uh, they were studying the slaves. Because we have them in these plantations, we can actually observe their life cycle and their family ties and how they respond to each other. And, and it's very real. It's not just a theoretical thing. It, it is not only real, it is real to the Europeans whose lives slavery touches. You know, we often think of Montesquieu, the, the, you know, the Frenchman who lives um, in a kind of winemaking region of France near Bordeaux. And he's very famous for a, a book he published in 1748 called The L'Esprit des Lois, The Spirit of Laws. And we somehow imagine him as one of these French philosophes, you know, sort of floating in the ether above Mount Olympus, having his great thoughts. But he sold the wine that he made in his chateau in near Bordeaux in the port of Bordeaux. And, and where did those ships take his wine? Well, they took his wine to the French sugar colonies in the Caribbean. He had books about slavery in his library. He had one of the largest private libraries in 18th century Europe, over 3,000 volumes. Montesquieu was very, very interested, not in slavery as an abstraction, even though he wrote one of the most moving denunciations of slavery that emerged in the 18th century, but he thought those things because he himself was partly invested in the activities of the slave trade. He was selling wine to the tables of the sugar colonies. So the, again, this to me was an example of how nobody has the privilege of floating in the ether. We are all invested in our time and place. We are all living in a political and social and material context that deeply presses on our on our ideas and and on the worldviews that we say are philosophical, but they're never purely just out there. And I really just wanted to show in this book how it it in no way diminishes ideas to say that they are the product of their social context. It in fact makes them more present and more comprehensible as being the product of human beings and human lives. Okay, let me ask you about uh, religion, uh, which I think you handled very well, the whole idea of natural religion. Uh, now, in, in Europe, I'm thinking about France specifically, was a very you know, Catholic society. 
the idea of natural religion did not catch on as much as it did in the United States or what became the United States. Can you talk about what the difference is in terms of how Americans thought about natural religion? And how was it different from traditional theological thought? Yeah, with religion, you know, religion and enlightenment have, a, have an often conflicted relationship because we imagine that they're opposed to one another, right? That, that in this great age that imagines human reason rather than, say, holy writ to be a, a potential guide to wise action. We think, well, everybody must have hated religion, or if they thought religious things, they, they must have been incompletely enlightened <laughs> or something like that. Um, and it's also the case that everywhere you look in Europe and the Americas, the religious context is very, very different, right? So we have to remember that whereas France is very Catholic at this moment, British North America is, is this kind of a funny place. There's very few Catholics, and they're this kind of persecuted um, minority. Uh, they're called papists. <laughs> they're feared, you know, as agents of, of the Pope. Most people are some version of Protestantism. And uh, so the ideas of enlightenment land in this particular religious context. And uh, it means that Americans are receptive to certain strands of religious thinking in enlightened ways and unreceptive to others. So from the get-go, we also have to realize that it's basically impossible to be an atheist in, in the 18th century. And so we first have to dissolve our um, misconception that enlightenment reason is somehow opposed to belief in God. People in the 18th century who imagine themselves to be enlightened, people like Adams or Jefferson, I'm just you know, naming the most famous people, they did believe in God. They believed in a very um, particular form of, of God, but, but there's no question that they believed that there was a, a, a deity out there who was more or less in charge of things, probably less in charge of things when you get to the more extreme wing. Um, but the, the chapter on religion was really an effort to recuperate how it was that a particular strand of thinking about what they called the religion of nature um, took, took hold in the particular place of, of British America. Um, and, you know, because like a lot of people, I'm curious about that little phrase in the Declaration of Independence, nature and nature's God. You know, wh what on earth does that mean? <laughs> which you just brought the Declaration of Independence, uh, which caused me to think about what you talked about, the pursuit of happiness, mm -hmm. which is part of the title of your book, that what, what they thought of a pursuit of happiness is not what we think of today. Yeah. And I'm kind of backtracking a little bit, but mm -hmm. you just you just reminded me of that. So can you talk can you say something about that? What was the pursuit of happiness and how <laughs> is that tied into enlightenment? Yeah. Well, you know, if you're enlightened, you're full of hope. That's that's these are just such optimistic people. They don't think that we're all gonna go burn in hell. And they also don't think that we're just gonna mess everything up from the get-go as as these declension narratives um, had it. They, they, they think that, that we can actually pursue happiness. And, and it, you know, of course, there's that beautiful phrase in the Declaration of Independence, but we have to beware, right? So in the 18th century, they, they have three conceptions of happiness, only one of which is ours today. They, first of all, think of happiness as a public um, a, a public state of being. They talk about social happiness or public happiness. And, and by that, they essentially mean a polity, a political um, grouping of people that is shielded from enemies on the outside and enemies from within. It is a safe place. It's, you know, I hate to, to use this phrase because it doesn't quite capture what they mean, but essentially national security is what they mean. A polity that has been secured so that the people within it can just lead their lives. 
You know, they're not afraid that a, that a bomb is going to fall or that a, a scheming demagogue is going to rise up and, and mess everything up. So, so they have time to make dinner and, and you know, walk with their friends and, and do all of the things that we think of as living. And it's in that second mode that we overlap with them on, on happiness, that, that pub, the, the achievement of public happiness, of national security, allows you to, to pursue what they call private happiness, which is, you know, a happy family, uh, enough to eat, um, a, a kind of a, a moral and an intellectual way of going about your life that makes you contented. They, they often look to the Epicureans in, in Rome and, and the Stoics to imagine a very thoughtful way of living. Not thoughtful in the sense that, you know, I would do something thoughtful for you, but that, that it is full of thought. That it is somebody who, who is not easily thrown off the rails by their neighbor doing better than they are. Um, it is not someone who's, who's easily torn away from their own guiding assumptions about how to live a good life. So to have that second kind of happiness can involve material well-being and the pursuit of material well-being. You know, they buy shoes, they're happy, right? But it's a much deeper kind of personal happiness. I just thought of the word common good. There was a pursuit of the common good. What's good that's going to create some kind of peaceful uh, well-being for everyone? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, and that it is done through reading, through conversation and debate with, with educated people. Um, and then finally, there's the third happiness, which is the happiness that lies beyond the portal of death, the eternal happiness of heaven, which you could only glimpse, of course, and imagine that it might be there. And unlike people who had lived before, they didn't think that that's where, uh, you know, you could only achieve happiness. They thought you could get some of it here on earth. But we today, by comparison with the 18th century, have a, a radically truncated sense of happiness. It's very hedonistic. And, and in some senses, for that reason, it's much more elusive. Um, we wonder why we're never happy. Well, we should expand our definition of what it means to be happy and, and pursue those public and, and more private ways of happiness that involve other people besides ourselves. You call the uh, 18th century Americans, there's a phrase in your book, I don't know if you're quoting something or it's your own words, but you say, the first prophets of tomorrow. What do you mean by that? <laughs> the first prophets of tomorrow. You know, I, for a while, imagined that that might be the subtitle of the book. And, I uh, loved it. Thank, I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I loved it, too, but a lot of people didn't. So, so it's, it's just in the book, not, not in the subtitle. Yeah, they're the first prophets of tomorrow. They are the first people who imagine that a secular tomorrow can be a golden tomorrow, that, that, and that it is in our power to make that golden tomorrow come. In fact, it's not only in our power, it's our duty to make that come. And they imagine a future that is attainable within the secular, the, the container of a single human life. Um, so, so and, and we think, well, of course, of course this is what you can do. Of course we think about tomorrow and, and we think it's going to be better than today. But that was new in the 18th century. And these are really the first people who in large numbers are beginning to imagine so this. So they're progressives. They're the first progressives. They're the first people who really, in a sustained way, use the word progress. Not only use it, but imagine that it's actually true, you know? So, so when we think, well, what is our relationship to these strange people who lived in the 18th century? They bequeath to us this idea that it is actually a law that everything should get better all the time. Now... <laughs> You know, try telling someone that that's not true. <laughs> well, it seems to me that I'm thinking, how could they think that? Because they were living in a time where medical science, which you don't really talk about in your book, was not where it is today. People were dying every day from childbirth, from diseases, which is, un they couldn't really control the medical aspects of their life, really. 
and they in the midst of all that death and suffering that people experience people lost you know lots of children and, and spouses all the time that they had that kind of hope yeah uh i've often pondered why that is and sometimes i think it's well it's also the people who in, kind of invented sh- sugar and coffee and tea and they were just on a massive happy sugar and caffeine high <laughs> of course they were optimistic about the world but this is one of those moments where you really do have to wrench away the human mind and imagination from material realities they had massive death people died of one god awful disease after another and, and this happened at the lowest levels of society to the highest level nobody yes. was immune from this nobody was immune there were parents who lost 12 13 14 15 children not one of their children survived to adulthood and they were still optimistic and they still became infatuated with this new idea that somehow we might imagine ourselves beyond this veil of suffering and that by looking in this world in this world and that by looking using our senses better microscopes more and by better they meant that you could see more you know that you could blow up bugs to the size of house cats you know that you could you could see better and you could see that maybe the cause of our suffering was not sin but little things that had no moral qualities and that we could we could with our own power rein those forces of destruction in um but the the so the narrative of progress as it begins to emerge in the 18th century of course it doesn't come to full flower in the 19th century is is liberating but it's also a prison you know we're surprised today when medical science has not delivered eternal life and and many people still die of diseases that we don't understand and that we cannot cure in time and so that's when i as the historian pause and and remember that the idea of progress is a human construction it's a narrative construction of reality and therefore it it, it may not be true maybe things don't get better through human reason or don't always get better and that is the double edged sword that the era of enlightenment gives to us um that that it gives us ways of thinking about our world that can become simultaneously liberations but also cognitive traps and now there's the ultimate experiment american experiment which is having a government with no king <laughs> maybe we should get one <laughs> we're taping this before the election exactly so so how did how did this american experiment about kingless government really sort of contribute to thoughts about sovereignty the sovereign king was going to be replaced by sovereign people yeah we're talking there's lots of ideas in europe about this but americans are really doing it they're going to really try to do this yeah This is amazing. It is amazing and they're really scared about it because they don't know if it's a good idea. So kings are the way to go up until the 18th century. Not only that, it's really really hard for Americans to understand that because we we are taught from the cradle to reflexively mock monarchy. And in fact, it's so mocked that we don't even teach kids to fear monarchy. Um it's just assumed that monarchs are lame. It's a, it's a joke. Monarchs are a joke. You go and maybe you go stand outside of Buckingham Palace and ooh and ah, but you would never actually want a monarch. And so it's hard for us to take ourselves back to the 18th century and imagine that people liked monarchs. Why did they like monarchs? Well, a lot of Europeans and many Americans thought that it was because monarchs were agents of enlightenment. Well, there were enlightened enlightened kings, right? There were quote enlightened despots. So the reasoning went like this. So the first thing we have to remember is that monarchs controlled vast resources in the 18th century and they were along with the aristocracy the major patrons of the arts and culture and education. and courts were you know 
places where you went for music and, and art and these kinds of things. In the United States, this has been taken over by uh, universities and by institutions of culture that in many cases are funded by the princely fortunes of the Industrial Revolution. So we've, we've actually simply transferred the financial obligations from monarchs to industrial titans. But when the Americans appeared in 1776 with this very, very strange idea that they were not only going to, you know, Brexit from the British Empire, but that they were going to go one step further and Brexit from the idea of a monarchy, that was very, very strange. It was very untried. And even the Americans were not 100% sure that it was a good idea. And they had a lot of data to show why it might not be a good idea. And so what I try to chart in this chapter in the book about republics versus monarchies is the, the live debate in the 18th century about what was more enlightened, republicanism, you know, kingless government by the people, or monarchy. And it was what I really wanted readers to take away from this was that it was not a done deal. It was not a settled debate. There is a two-day period in 1796 when the U.S. House of Representatives actually spends a whole bunch of time debating whether it's okay to say to the rest of the world that the United States is the most enlightened nation in the world. And a lot of the representatives are standing up saying, I'm actually not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure we're the most enlightened. And, you know, we're not that militarily powerful, so maybe we shouldn't say that to the French and British who might be irritated. If we do say that, that we are, they'll come and clobber us, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of uncertainty about whether kingless republicanism is in fact a, a path to enlightenment or not. Whether you can keep order. There's a, a fear of disorder. A fear of disorder. Are the people... So, you know, if you say, well, kings are not wise. They are, they are unwise. They are not the path to happiness. And you say only the people have the path to happiness. Well, that's, that's a nice sounding sentence, but it's hugely problematic. Suddenly you go from having to monitor one mind to millions and, you know, one of the great fears that the new transition to Republican government puts on the table is, okay, well, how do we educate? How do we bring enlightenment to so many people? If the whole government rests on the wisdom of the people, then how can we be sure that they are going to be enlightened? And if we can't commit the resources to give everybody art and culture and music and all of these things, maybe... You can expect a kind of low level of enlightenment in a republic, and only geniuses will emerge in Europe where you can take people in a hothouse environment of a court and really cultivate the finest flower of human genius. But you're never going to have the resources to do that in a republic because there's just too many people to worry about. That is a live fear in the United States. And it is something that the Europeans are constantly throwing back at the Americas. And, and you know, when, when John Adams comes back from Europe in 1780 and wants to found the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, he models it on European aristocratic institutions because <laughs> that's the only model that there is. So, so the chapter was to kind of shake up Americans and say, you know, don't just automatically think that republicanism is the path to enlightenment. It is a live debate in the 18th century, and I'm going to sound like a monarchist now, and I'm not, um, but, but it should be a live debate today. It is very, very important, the question of how we educate hundreds of thousands, millions of people, up to a level where we can support a democratic government. The problem has not gone away. It's just gotten bigger. Carolyn, I wanted to ask you, what is your, one of the last questions I have is, what did you gain in terms of personal insight for yourself in doing this project? You know, for me, this book was so fun to write. I, it was a, 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 an exercise in sheer joy because I talked about things that not only the people in the 18th century were interested in, but also the things that I was interested in. Seashells in the Appalachians, fossils, mastodons, plants, science, planets, whatever. All of these things are very interesting to me. And 
along the way, I got to spend time inside the minds of people who were very curious in the 18th century. And they're very few things in life that are more fun than spending your time with curious people. So the takeaway for me was write another book about people you really enjoy spending your days with because you're going to be spending a lot of days with (laughs) with your people. Um, So it was just a really exhilarating book to write. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. You can drop me a line through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 